You might also want to have a finger in Psalm 24 because we'll be referring back there a little later on. But Matthew chapter 5, if you're joining us for the first time, or not been with us for a few weeks, we're working our way through these uh, statements of the Lord Jesus Christ as he begins what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. And let me just read again from verse 2. Jesus has gathered the disciples, the crowds are listening in as well. And we read there, he began to teach them. He said, blessed to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Stop there, let's pray. Father, we do turn to these words of the Lord Jesus, and we want to pray this morning that we would indeed hear from him. And we would have that wonderful experience of, as it were, in these next moments, sitting at the feet of Jesus himself, not just ministering to our minds, but ministering to our very souls, according to our need. Lord, I confess that I cannot do that, but you can. And so we ask that you would be at work. For the glory of your name and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we sit here this morning, I want you to reflect for a moment on something that you are looking forward to. Is there an event planned, a holiday, or trip for which you're excited? What are you looking forward to? Perhaps it's visiting family and friends. And the greatest excitement in your mind is to be seeing them, to catch up. For others, maybe it's visiting a place that you've not been before and you're excited. Perhaps it's a particular place of cultural uh, interest, some architectural wonder, or uh, 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 the, the seat of some great historical event. Perhaps you've got tickets for a show or an event and you're anticipating the atmosphere and the occasion and you're excited by that. Perhaps it's just the vista of a wonderful advisor that you are anticipating. Or the return to an old haunt and taking in the scenery all over again. What are you looking forward to? I hope there are things in your diary that you are planning that you're looking forward to seeing in the coming months again. But whether or not you are excited by plans you are making at the moment, the people or places you might see. The verse that we are looking at this morning, Matthew 5, verse 8, this beatitude that we are studying talks about a sight that beats all the wonders of the world and the dearest family and friend. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The prospect to behold God as he truly is, to see him as he is. The future for the people of God. The Bible tells us, of course, that we will all stand one day before the judgment seat of God. But Jesus is getting at something more than that. The pure in heart will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Sure, that prospect is, to us, awful in that true sense, awfilling. Who are we? Yet how does your heart respond to such a prospect? Surely how you react to these words by the Lord Jesus tell you as much as anything about your true spiritual longing. Friends, the goal of the gospel, the goal of Christianity, the purpose of heaven, the reality of the new heavens and the new earth, is not simply that you have escaped the consequences of sin and now can live a perfect life to pursue to the full your favorite hobby. That's not what heaven's about. No, have you thought about this before? The goal of the gospel is that God intends to live with you. To dwell with his people. The theme of God rescuing and redeeming a people that are his very own, that he might live with, runs through the pages of Scripture. Sin, of course, the Bible teaches us, separates us from God. That's why Adam and Eve are, are forced to leave the garden. With Old Testament Israel, the whole sacrificial system and the laws about uh, cleanliness and uncleanliness make that so evident, don't they? So much so that at the end of the Old Testament, the question of how can a sinful people ever truly live with a holy God to know Him and enjoy Him forever is the most urgent of questions. Sin always gets in the way, but the gospel, the good news about Jesus is the answer, isn't it? Jesus, God in the flesh, comes and dwells with us in order that he might make it possible for sinful human beings to share the holy character of God. He dies for our sins. Risen and ascended, he pours out his spirit into our hearts so our hearts are more and more inclined to his ways. And can you see the goal? Those verses we read at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, on that day when the dwelling place of God is now with the people, and he will dwell with them. Goes on, doesn't it? Tears wiped away, no more death, no more mourning, everything made new. C.S. Lewis, chapter 1 of the great story he talks about, doesn't he? Which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one that comes before. And at the center of it all, the triune God of love who forgives all sins, heals all diseases, redeems your life, crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies all your desires, your youth renewed. Yes, we know it in part now, but then we will see. So back to Jesus' words, do you look forward to this wonder? The wonder of standing before the Lord in perfect intimacy. Blessed, how truly good is the life of the pure in heart. For they will see God. I hope you feel the pull 
of Jesus' words. But if you are like me, my first reaction is, pure in heart, that doesn't sound like me. We might track with Jesus when he talks about the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, even the merciful, but pure in heart? We wonder, who is he talking about? And yet, wonderfully, he really is talking to us and is talking about us. Purity in heart sounds hard, doesn't it? It sounds like a battle. As soon as we hear those words, we are aware of our impurity and our shame. Yet our Saviour is saying that despite all the baggage that our sinful habits leave in our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, he has come to win our hearts, to cleanse our hearts, to incline our hearts to him and his ways. Yes, it is a battle against sin, the world and the devil. Yes, it involves standing alone at times in the staff room, the office, even around the family meal table. It involves personal struggle as by God's grace you wrestle against temptation from without and from within. But friends, this morning take Jesus at his word. Blessed are the pure in heart. How truly good, deeply joy-filled are the pure in heart. In fact, I want to suggest to each of us that this is the hole in our happiness. The restlessness of our hearts, as Augustine puts it, need the holy God. Pursue this. So let's ask two questions as we begin, as we go through. What does it mean to be pure in heart? It's a really important question, isn't it? And secondly, why is such a life the truly good life? So firstly then, what does it mean to have a pure heart? I wonder whether when you were at school, you were one of those children who would be chosen to represent the school when there was a special visitor. You know, the mayor is visiting the school and we need a couple of children to greet her at the main entrance and show her around. Or some famous author was coming and very exciting. And some children chosen to have tea and biscuits with him. I was never chosen. And you can probably guess why? It wasn't that I was particularly badly behaved at school, but because as the teachers chose who to, who to pick, they could not guarantee that I wouldn't get dinner down my sweatshirt at lunchtime or have torn my trousers in the playground by playing football at break time or just come into school that day generally disheveled and with really bad bed hair. I was never suitable to be the public face of the school, not because I didn't love the school, but because I'm often scruffy and disheveled. And even when I've made an effort, that's true, as many of you know who have tried to straighten my jacket on a Sunday morning. Some of you were chosen for such things. Good on you. Not me. Not me. My guess is many of us read this beatitude and think Jesus isn't talking about us because our lives are too much of a mess to ever reach the heights of Christianity as to be described as pure in heart. We are so aware of the bad stuff, 
the struggle we have with sin. You think about yourself spiritually and you know you're a liability. But when Jesus talks about purity of heart, he does not mean sinlessness in life. The Bible's clear on this, isn't it? 1 John 1 verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And so I, if, if we go down that route, Jesus is talking about a category that can never be achieved. If we're out, out sin, we deceive ourselves. So purity of heart does not mean you've never had a bad thought. Not sinless. So with that out of the way, let's look at what Jesus is saying. Jesus is talking, of course, about the human heart. But we need to note that in contrast, particularly in the Gospels we see this, with the teaching of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who focused, didn't they, on external behavior. Jesus in his teaching, if you read the Gospels, has this relentless focus on our hearts, as does the whole of the Bible. And when the Bible talks about the heart, it's referring to who you truly are, the core of your being. It's like, if you like, command and control of your life. The place from which your actions, your words come. Jesus says at one point, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus focuses there because that is where the fundamental problem lies. The Old Testament speaks, doesn't it, of the heart being deceitful above all others. And in Matthew 15, Jesus speaks to his disciples and makes clear that the heart is the problem. It's not the things on the outside that make you unclean, he says, but from the heart. Matthew 15, verse 17, Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but not but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Can you see? The things that come out of the heart separate us from God. So from a biblical point of view, parents, to teach our children to follow their heart, as many a Disney song does, is terrible advice, tragic advice. The heart is deceitful. Out of the heart comes attitudes and behaviors that are opposed to God. Notice how countercultural Jesus is. Following your heart, Jesus says, does not make you happy. A pure heart makes you happy. Blessed are the pure in heart. This separation that our hearts cause between ourselves and God is illustrated by that psalm that we began the service with reading, Psalm 24. If you want to turn there, that might be helpful. In verse 3, the psalm asks this question, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who can be in the place that God is. And the answer, if you turn there, is, is, is striking because it seems, doesn't it, to anticipate Jesus' words here in Matthew 5. The answer, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Saviour. 
And notice the next verse as well. There, such is the generation who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. It's those with clean hands and a pure heart who can ascend God's holy hill. And the psalm helps us to understand what a pure heart is all about. A pure heart is one who does not trust an idle motive or swear falsely. In other words, it's an undivided heart. An undivided heart. Not a person who, yeah, trusts God, yeah, yeah, but is also worshipping other gods just in order to hedge their bets. No, an undivided heart. Not one eye on heaven and one eye on earth. Not trying to follow God, but equally concerned with having all the creature comforts of this world. Like Lot's wife, if you like, seemingly fleeing the coming judgment, but all the time coddling those very things for which judgment was coming. Not double-minded, as James will write in his New Testament letter, but simple, undivided heart. Another way we might put it is, is a person that seeks to love God with all their heart, soul, and mind, so that there are no competing loves. See, for Adam and Eve back in the garden, remember their desire for the fruit and the treacherous promise of the serpent competed, didn't it, in their hearts for love for God through obedience to his instruction, his word. God does not tolerate rivals. The pure heart is simple, a seeking of God alone. That's how Psalm 24 puts it, doesn't it? Such is the generation who seek him who seek your face, God of Jacob. And of course, that does not mean that we cannot love or enjoy anything else. No, God calls us to love our neighbor. And so loving our neighbor is demonstrating our love to God by following his instructions. God calls us, calls for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And similarly, for wives to love their husbands in showing them respect. Love should flow from our lives rather than taking our love away. Love of God enables us to love well in this world. Our loves become rightly ordered in a way that demonstrate our love for God first and His ways. It's a simple, undivided heart. It's also a sincere and not hypocritical heart. No pretense, not swearing falsely and doing something else. Not one thing on a Sunday and another thing elsewhere. The undivided heart doesn't wear masks, doesn't need to. And so you can see that to have a pure heart costs a person. Because rather than following the deceitful desires of our own hearts or the voice of worldly culture or the lies of the devil, we love God first. And loving God, we will use our money, our bodies, our talents, our gifts, our time in a way that honors and demonstrates our love for him and that will make us stand out in our culture, in a culture that does not put love of God, of course, first, but rather love of self. Yet Jesus says, the pure in heart are happy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Purity of heart is not perfection. It's not, sin, uh, it's not sinlessness of life. It's not even about where you want to be in terms of growth in the Christian life. 
does not lie so much in what has been attained as in much what we are pursuing, how we pursue it. Paul described it so helpfully in Philippians chapter 3. But one thing I do. Hear that phrase again? But one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. The pure heart is the simple and undivided heart, the sincere and not hypocritical heart. And friends, the good news is, the Bible tells us that such a heart is a gift of grace. Perhaps you're sitting here thinking, my heart is not like that. And the answer is repentance, turning to God. As David is convicted of his um, adultery with Bathsheba, he comes to God in repentance. Remember that psalm, Psalm 51? It's recorded for us. He confesses his sin. He asks for pardon for the Lord to blot out all his iniquity. And then he prays, remember these words, create in me a pure heart, O God. David understands he needs more than simply forgiveness. He needs a new heart. Friends, maybe you sit here reflecting on the brokenness of your heart. You're fully aware of the dark things that hide there. And you listen to this and think, yeah, that's great, but it's not me. You've seen things you wish you hadn't seen. You've done things you wish you hadn't done. And you feel the impact of your thoughts and feelings. You know your desires are all messed up. Perhaps on your... Best days you can imagine God's forgiveness, but you can't see yourself changing. How can you get out the things that are in you? But friends, David here in Psalm Psalm 51 wrestles with exactly the same things. Blot out my iniquity, he prays, take it away. But it's not just that this stuff happened. It lives in him. And so he prays, create in me a pure heart. And that's not just David's problem or your problem. The Old Testament problem, Old Testament prophets identify that it's Israel's, everybody's greatest problem. Their hearts deceitful, twisted, always going astray. Even though God has set his love upon the Jewish nation, rescued them from Egypt and brought them to the promised land, yet their hearts led them astray. God would forgive them as they cried out to him, but it would not be long until they were in the same mess. How can a sinful people ever share the holy character of God. But the promise of the new covenant addresses that very thing, doesn't it? In Ezekiel 36, we read of that new covenant. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities, from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit in you. I'll remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave to your ancestors. You will be my people. I will be your God. The prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31 of his book, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it upon their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This new covenant sealed Remember it in a moment as we come to the Lord's table, sealed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. Paul explains it so helpfully in Titus 
chapter 3, he says it in this way, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Now listen to this. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Friend, he washes your mind and regenerates your heart. That means he gives you new affections, new interests, new inclinations, and new energy, so that over time, you find yourself hating the sin you used to love. As Christ washes your heart, you gain a fresh love for him, a new interest in his word, in his people, in his service. You see why the pure in heart are happy? For while they are not sinless, not perfect, not this side of heaven, but sin has lost the grip it once had on their lives. They are no longer in bondage to it. Yes, while we have this earthly body, we struggle and groan, but fresh desires are awakened by Christ and his ways. You see it again? The begatitudes begin, don't they, with the poor in spirit, but to such there is grace upon grace. These beatitudes, not the entry requirements to the kingdom. They are the work of grace, the work of the life of the kingdom coming near in Jesus for all who come in repentance and faith. We sung it a moment ago, didn't we? The things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of the glory and grace of our Lord Jesus. But can you see this beatitude does question for us who are believers, brother and sister, whether this activity, or whether this is an active priority for our lives. See, a new heart should increasingly be an undivided heart. As we learn and experience more of God's love for us, so our love should be growing for him so that we would be less divided, less hypocritical. In the, book, in the letter James writes, he puts it like this, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded. God will draw near to us but James tells us to purify our hearts. Our hearts are washed clean by Christ. So we begin there, be set on him, undefining, undivided in living for Jesus. Not a sinless life, but a life transformed by God's grace, which is increasingly undivided in seeking God and his kingdom first. It's a pure heart. Lots to think about, lots to pray about there for us personally, isn't there? But let's move on, and more briefly, why is such a person who has a pure heart blessed? Why is this a truly good life? In 1968, Paul McCartney wrote the song, The Long and Winding Road. Apparently the phrase was inspired, as he wrote, by the sight of a road stretching up into the hills in the remote highlands. And at the time of writing, there was a growing tension. If you know the history of the Beatles, a growing tension among the Beatles. And based on comments McCartney has made, some understand this song as expressing the loss that he felt at the direction the friendships amongst those four boys from Liverpool had taken as the band began to fall apart. It's a song, if you know it, of sadness at something lost, 
something of a longing to go back to something. Lead me to your door. McCartney sings. But that song is so popular, I think, because we all know that feeling of loss, of wanting to go back. Back at the beginning, the Bible tells us Adam and Eve enjoyed perfect relationship with God in the garden. But this love story goes tragically wrong through the deceitfulness of the serpent. Adam and Eve's hearts turn away from God. And they and now we find ourselves locked out of the garden. So we look on. And we naturally read those verses in Psalm 24. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Stand in the place of holiness. And the sense is one of loss, isn't it? We are now on the outside of those things. There is no going back. Long or, and winding road or not. And yet, that longing remains. A longing for security. A longing for contentment. For relationship. A lost intimacy. Lead me to your door. C.S. Lewis captures this in his message, Weight of Glory. He talks about the sense we have as human beings in this universe as, as if we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, he says, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret as human beings. In this vast universe, he's saying, belonging matters to us, but we feel so often on the outside. And here Jesus speaks of the welcome for which we long. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Those of you who know your Bibles will know how elusive that is. Moses, we're told in Exodus 33, would talk with God face to face as a man talks to his neighbor. And when Moses met God in the tabernacle, remember, his face would shine. But even then, same chapter records, Moses could not see his face. Of course, in Jesus... We see God. But even then, there's a sense in which his glory is veiled in human flesh. Today we can see God as we read his word and his spirit inclines our hearts to see his beauty and draws us out in worship. And yet still it is veiled. We see dimly, don't we? But Jesus talks of a day ahead when we shall see him with our own eyes. Apostle John, who heard those words from Jesus, says we shall see him as he is. What a sight it will be, friends. It will be a beautiful sight. Think about this. If we joy, I see it on your faces at times, if we joy at singing of Jesus our Saviour, if our hearts burn within us as we read his word and hear it taught, what will it be to behold him face to face, robed in humanity and robed in glory? It will be a sight, we're told, that transforms us. Us to be like him. Such a sight will transform his people into glory. A little bit like, this is not a great image, but it's a helpful one, I hope. When you go home at night and you switch on the light, yeah, and the whole room fills with light, it fills with light, if you like, at the sight of the bulb. So our lives 
filled with glory at the sight of God. We shall be like him, 1 John 3, for we shall see him as he is. We will not partake of God's very essence, but by beholding the magnificence of God's majesty, we shall be all that God intended for us to be. Fully healed, fully whole. And so the prospect, a joyful sight, the bride running to her lover's arms. Peter writes, doesn't he, though you do not see him, you love him and are filled with inexpressible joy. How much more when he is there? And to uphold our God will be a satisfying sight, our heads filled with knowing, our hearts filled with joy. Let me pick up from that quote from C.S. Lewis. He talks about that prospect in this way. Glory means good rapport with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and a welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Friends, do you see it? The pure in heart see God, for that is what purity of heart longs for. That's what you are pursuing, Jesus, in all his glory. He's not a picture of the schoolboy with the school rules who creeps up to the teacher in that smarmy way like a goody-goody. I love your rules, sir. It's the heart transformed by the mercy of the kingdom that longs for more of heaven, more of it breaking in, and for more of the king who reigns to pursue him, Jesus is to pursue, friends, the things he loves, isn't it? And by doing so, you are nurturing what will be yours by his grace. To stand in his presence, gaze upon his face, be enthralled by that vision. Psalm 24 ends, I think, in a tantalizing way. Who may go up the hill? Those with clean hands and a pure heart. And then instead of a mountain, we are at the gates of this ancient throne room. And the doors that have been closed seemingly for an age are commanded to be open. Because the king of glory comes, not comes out, enters in. That the king of glory may come in. Here is the one who has ascended the mountain. And the doors that have been shut for so long are flung open. It's reminiscent, isn't it, of that vision in Daniel chapter 7. One like the Son of Man ascends to the Ancient of Days, is given authority and glory and sovereign power. Does Psalm 24 foresee the King who comes, having conquered sin and death, ascending the holy mountain, entering the most holy place, pours out His Spirit, that all who will may ascend clothed in a righteousness that is not their own, but is Christ's, cleansed by his blood, hearts made new. That's the invitation. It's the invitation to us all in this room this morning, through Jesus. Church, he is your saviour. He opens this living way. He gives you a clean heart. Draw near to him. Purify your hearts. Anticipate that day when his people, as Revelation tells us, will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads.
there will be no more night. There will not be need for the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And the Apostle John writes, anyone who has this hope purifies himself as Christ is pure. Let me pray. Let me give you some time in the quiet of your own heart to respond to God's word. Father, we marvel that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, might speak such hope to ones like us. That he might take our hearts, broken and twisted and rebellious as they are, and that you might create in us a pure heart. That you might redeem us. You might wash us clean that we might live with the prospect of seeing you in perfect intimacy and love. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see the means by which that is possible, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and be so enthralled by his love for us that we would live pursuing the prize that calls us heavenward in Christ Jesus. May it be said of each person here, but one thing I do, forgetting what is past, taking hold of the Lord Jesus Christ today. Help us now, even as we gather around the Lord's table, to have that sense again of commitment to Christ as we remember his love for us at the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.